Welcome to Wall Street Weekly, a show where your hosts, George and Patrick, cut through the financial jargon to keep you educated and informed about the markets that affect our lives. Enjoy the show. This is the highly informing, overperforming radio show on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is George Akala, joined alongside the person who makes the markets move, Patrick Scott. Patrick, welcome to the program. I don't know if that's a compliment. If the markets are going down, that's probably an insult. Well, you are in fact right. Apple has gone down about 6% since you last presented on the innovations of Apple. I don't know if there's anything there. We're going to go with no. Um, I think that's a good point to put in our disclosure that this is an entertainment program. Anything we say therein is not financial advice, strictly entertainment. Don't take any advice from this show without doing your due diligence. So, yeah, like I said, Apple is down about 6%. If you want to listen to the podcast where Patrick talks about how great Apple is, you can listen to last week's episode um, on X, I guess, not Twitter anymore, at Wall Street Pod. So have you heard about any of this Apple stuff, Patrick, or is this new to you? Um, I did see, I got a Yahoo Finance notification today that Apple stock went down, but no, I didn't. I did not see um, any specifics about why it was down. So last week we mentioned how Apple is trying to get into the Latin American market. Well, I hope they can sell iPhones in Latin America because the government in Beijing has just banned all government employees from using iPhones, citing security concerns. Um, And that might be part of the stock drop. But I think the more important innovation here, a Chinese phone is making headlines. Some are calling it the best phone ever. You hadn't heard about this. Nope, I don't think so. Okay, so the Huawei, spelt H-U-A-W-E-I, is releasing a phone that people are calling the best ever based on its storage, so it has over a terabyte of storage. Compared to iPhone, which has... I think the highest model of iPhone is 512. I think my current iPhone that I use is like 64 gigs or something. So a terabyte is 1,024 gigabytes, which is absolutely massive. Oh, wow. They have a 50 megapixel camera, which is said to be better or as good as the iPhone 14 Pro. So you already have a a better camera, better storage. Uh, Probably most impressively, though, is its ability to connect to a satellite calling network. So you don't have to have the infrastructure of all these cell towers worry about your providers. Um, This phone is allegedly able just to connect to Huawei's satellite network and make calls that way. Um, But, of course, because it is China, the U.S. government is investigating it uh, for a lot of different reasons. Any guesses why? Um, Security concerns. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, security concerns is a major one. Obviously, they don't want necessarily this being sold in the U.S., especially um, because Huawei, in June, they announced that they did some nuclear defense systems for the Chinese Communist Party. So obviously Wait, they the do phone it. company did nuclear tests. They didn't do nuclear tests. They did uh they made like a computer program so they could identify if there was any nuclear threats to Chinese the Chinese mainland and then like neutralize those threats. So I think the bigger concern there is that they do have ties with the party and you know probably some loyalty there. Yeah, okay. Uh but we'd we'd need to bring in a politics show if we wanted um <laughs> all of those details. All that to say is that Apple's foothold in China seems to have the potential um, to be decreasing there. Um, Additionally, I I should have mentioned earlier, the government's also investigating um, how they got this technology because 
the U.S. has been basically strictly banning any technology of like the 5G nature from entering China since 2019. Huh. Okay, this is interesting. And also, there's the whole idea with you know China banning iPhones. Doesn't China make a lot of the iPhones? Isn't manufacturing of Apple phones in China? So they don't have the information, though, right? It's still a U.S. governed board. They're going to make the decision. So, yes, they do make the components, but it could be a security threat with, uh, you know, Apple in the U.S. owning the technology or the the software and certain things. But, yeah, down about 6%, which for Apple, which is the biggest stock in the world, um, very big reason for concern. That's probably not even the biggest story for... this week, in my opinion. Now, if you look at Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, this is going to be a pretty dominant headline, a headline that isn't getting as much attention. And what I want to talk about today is the United Auto Workers Union. Now, had you heard about this, Patrick, before I brought it to our show meeting? No, not at all. And that's pretty common. So I was actually researching and I looked at a few sites and it was buried. You know, there's tens and tens of stories above it. But Allegedly, on Friday, September 15th, which, if you're listening to this right now on the radio, is less than a week from today, uh, the United Auto Workers will walk out of factories if the labor negotiations don't go through. So what companies does this represent? So you've got Ford, which is comprised of Ford and Lincoln. You've got GM, General Motors, which is comprised of Buick, GMC, Cadillac, and Chevy. And then finally, Stellantis, uh, made up of Fiat, Dodge, Chrysler, Jeep, and Ram. And since this is, uh, we're recording this out of Hillsdale, um, I think there is a big concern in the state of Michigan, too, that you have around 50,000 Michigan employees working between uh, Ford and Lincoln. You have around 46,000 Michigan employees working for General Motors and about 11,000 Michigan employees working for Stellantis. So this is going to have major ramifications in the investing world, obviously, um, and, and we'll talk about that a little later. But, you know, specifically for the state in general, uh, most people aren't talking about this. I think there's just kind of this idea that a strike of this size is never going to happen uh, because we haven't seen anything like this in the past. But what scares me a little, and maybe scares isn't the right word, um, but there's been a lot of determination on the part of the leader of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain. Um, He's kind of a a wild card figure. Uh, Some examples of this, normally they're pretty cordial with negotiations. That's how unions work. Even if they hate each other, I'm sure you've seen the historical pictures of handshakes or they're sitting around a meeting table together of, you know, union bosses and uh, CEOs. He has been reluctant to meet with these people, reluctant to shake their hands. Um, But even more than that, he's brought his demands forward. And when Stellantis gave him an offer that he considered, quote unquote, insulting, he actually threw the offer in the garbage on a live stream. So, I mean, this guy is just uh, cut from maybe a different cloth than, than most of these guys. And you might be wondering, Patrick, what are the terms? Why is this, you know, getting so close to a deadline? Why can't the the automakers just agree. And what was the insulting offer? <laughs> so the insulting offer was a 10% immediate pay raise with uh, there was going to be some employee benefits, I think, perks along with that, including 
a cost of living adjustment. So it would always stay 10% higher than what their wages are right now. So it'll adjust for inflation. It would adjust for cost of living. Yeah. Essentially inflation. That seems like a good deal. It it doesn't, I, I don't know all the details of the offer, but yeah, I would be inclined to think, you know, that's not the worst. I'm not, probably shouldn't be a, a labor union boss because I don't have my bar <laughs> set high enough. There's rumors that the initial offer was over, well, not rumors, the initial demands were over a 40% wage increase. That's what the union boss wanted, in addition to going down to 32-hour work weeks. 32, and that, wow. 32 hours, and that made me wondering, why am I sitting at a college recording a radio show if I can be w- making 40% more and, you know, working 32-hour work weeks, maybe I'm in the wrong field. And in, a- in addition to that, that includes the cost of living adjustments, and they wanted them to bring back the pension plan or the more robust pension plan. Well, these factory workers are going to be millionaires in a few years. Yeah, and I think part of that stems from the UPS uh, labor union deal that we saw reached, being reached earlier this summer. Now, I haven't researched that too extensively, um, but people say that within five years, the average UPS worker is going to be making more than $170,000 a year. Now, I think w- why people should be a little more concerned about this is this week, I believe it was Ford and GM, they offered, their offers were the 10% increases as well. And he's still kind of holding out for 40%. Um, it seems to me that he's dropped maybe some of his demands for pension plan and the reduced our work week hasn't really been talked about as much, but even still, that seems like a very big chasm. They have less than seven days to figure that out. I, I just kind of wonder, wh- where do you even start, if, if you know what I mean? Like, how do you... It, it seems like both sides are, pr- are pretty firmly entrenched, so... Yeah, that's it, a pretty big gap to try to compromise. Yeah, I mean, either way, we'll know a lot more when we broadcast next week, for better or for worse. Um, but like I said, I think it's something that you're going to hear a lot more about in early next week if something doesn't get figured out. And as far as it relates to investing, right, this isn't necessarily an investing problem, but I think it could really upend the consumer cyclical industries. Obviously, these stocks in particular are going to be impacted. But if there's one thing we know about investing, it's that events like these tend to have a ripple effect throughout the economy. You know, it, it could also encourage other workers to strike or if they get a great deal, you know, maybe whether that's steel or other industrial companies, that could eat into their profit margins if they are having to pay these people much more, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. Um, it, it just could very much change the dynamics, dynamics of the market, whether or not a deal gets reached. And now we'll transition over to another thing that involved a lot of negotiations over the summer, the debt ceiling. So Patrick, take that away. All right. So the debt ceiling that happened over the summer. So Quick definition of what a debt ceiling is. This is from the U.S. Treasury's website. The debt limit is the total amount of money that the United States government is authorized to borrow to meet its existing legal obligations, including Social Security and Medicare benefits, military salaries, interest on the national debt, tax refunds, and other payments. Basically, this seems like a long, extended definition of saying it's a debt budget and it keeps on changing. Yeah. It's kind of like your credit card. You can only borrow so much on a credit card, but if you're the government, you can change the limit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So quick question. Who does the government exactly borrow from? Is it mostly individuals via treasury bills? Is it companies or other countries even? 
Uh, I mean, a lot of it's, yeah, through treasury bills, treasury bonds, treasury notes, like you said. Um, a lot of companies are in who are working for individuals uh, will borrow from the U.S. government, or not borrow, but rather lend to the U.S. government, and then other countries do as well. So to get to the heart of this, um, as far as the historical perspective, the government really set itself up for these consistent payment obligations. Um, this is all stemming really from FDR's New Deal policies in the 30s. We're at the point today where government can't really function properly unless it goes into further debt. And I'm no like genius economist. I'm not claim, claiming to be a whiz kid here, but that doesn't seem very good to me, George. Yeah, I mean, having a little debt, some people argue is fine, but I, I don't think it takes anything more than like, you know, an elementary student to know that less is generally better. Yeah, they can't pay cash for anything. So this is from the U.S. Treasury website as well. Um, it says, failing to increase the debt limit would have catastrophic economic consequences. It would cause the government to default on its legal obligations, an unprecedented event in American history. That would precipitate another financial crisis uh, and threaten the jobs and savings of everyday Americans, putting the United States right back in a deep economic hole, just as the country is recovering from the recent recession. So if the government defaults, like what happens? Would treasury bonds, which are historically among the most reliable investments, would those just simply be erased? Yeah, I believe that's what they claimed was going to happen. Um, the reason that people weren't more scared is because it was like, okay, this is never going to actually... N no senator is going to win a re-election campaign by, oh, I voted, so we defaulted on our <laughs> debt. Um, but yeah, there is significant consequences if you do. Yeah, okay. So for more perspective, the debt ceiling has been raised 78 times since 1960. So this isn't anything unusual, but probably the fact that it is usual is not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every time you're raising the cap, it's like kind of moving closer and closer. It, it, when they talk about like small changes and you don't realize that a big change is taking place, right. I think some would argue that's what's happened is, yeah, each incremental step, we can argue, oh, we were avoiding a recession or, oh, this was a necessary step. And it probably was. But if you take 78 of those steps. You're right. Yeah. So where this relates to the summer, um, the debt ceiling of $31 trillion was met in January. D.C. voted to suspend it in June um, of this summer for another two years so that they just won't have to talk about it again until 2025. After this, um, Fitch, the credit agency, they lowered the credit rating of the U.S. government from AAA, which is the best rating, to AA+. And Fitch's website says the rating downgrade of the United States reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to AA and AAA rated peers over the last two decades that has been manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions. So obviously the Biden administration is going to get mad at this because it's it, it looks bad on their resume, right? This isn't yeah. this isn't looking good um, for them going to a new election, you know. Even though, because they they've been complaining because they believe they have a good record, you know, inflation has been slowing down and such, and so they feel like they're doing a good job. Yeah. All of a sudden, your credit rating just goes down. Yeah, I mean, to be fair though, they don't necessarily. Obviously, Biden and his administration signs it into a power. They talk about what goals they want to accomplish, but 
it does fall in large part too on Congress. They have the power of the purse to authorize these things. Which, but. which I think is really funny because it's a Republican House right now. So I think the fact that it took them a while to to approve the debt ceiling and now it's looking bad on Biden, I think that's just pretty funny. Yeah. How does this affect investing? So Warren Buffett said that the U.S. government is a reliable investment. Treasury bonds, you know, they have a low risk of default. As we've seen, the U.S. government can just postpone its, its, its debt problems. So after multiple issues like this, people are going to be less willing to buy treasury bonds. Um, and especially seeing the government's lowered credit rating, they're going to be less willing to lend to a creditor who might not pay them back. Which, to be fair, though, I'm going to do a, a couple counterpoints um, so we're just you know, not ripping the whole time. So even Buffett has come out and said, okay, this is kind of like stupid because the U.S. is still the world's reserve currency. So ultimately, since these bonds are denominated in U.S. dollars, if it really came down to it, they could print more money. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do or the responsible thing to do or the long-term thing to do, but they could do that. Farther, there are still some countries that are AAA rated. And one of them is Liechtenstein. <laughs> and someone brought up the point. They said, okay, how is Liechtenstein rated higher, debt rated higher than the U.S. when the U.S. is providing military support to that country? And without the U.S., Liechtenstein, you know, would probably easily or quickly fall in a war. So, yeah, there's, I think, nine countries that have debt higher rated than the U.S., but pretty much all of them rely on U.S. aid to protect them in times of need. Uh, so I, I still think that the U.S. is probably one of the safest governments to put your money in, if not the safest. But still, that doesn't change the fact that it might not necessarily be, um, you know, the next century. Or, you know, it seems like a long time to us, but that could be relatively short. Interesting. Yeah. So, George, one of the things to watch um, with these debt limit standoffs is do these cause an increase in bond interest rates um, to make them more attractive if people are going to be less willing to buy them? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. That's what normally is going to happen in something like this. Obviously, you didn't really see it as much. I, I do think rates jumped by a few basis points, but it wasn't that significant. However, if it would have been like corporate debt for a company or another country that doesn't you know dominate a lot of the financial markets like the U.S. does, yeah, I think it would have had a lot bigger implications. Hmm, okay. So experts have predicted um, volatility in the stock market after these debt ceiling standoffs. And as the Treasury runs low on its money, it's going to spend less on government programs. Um, so it's instead of choosing to default on its, on its Treasury bills, um, it's going to limit payments um, to other government programs. So this can affect things like education, defense spending, and maybe even health care. We'll see. But these are industries that can also be affected um, by th this, this kind of situation. Yeah, definitely. And the, and the worry going forward, too, is to be more physically responsible, it's going to take a lot of hard decisions. And so people are wondering, OK, are you going to start taxing more? That seems like a lot of people's uh, first course of action is topping the one, taxing the 1% or taxing the corporations. As investors, that's kind of tough to see because ultimately that's going to impact uh, your stock's bottom line and you're probably not going to see those, the same returns if that were to happen. Well, to wrap up the show, in honor of Warren Buffett's 93rd birthday a couple weeks back, 
crazy that he's already that old. I remember when he was just in his 80s. I don't know if that was a weak attempt at a joke. so fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll, we'll end with a Warren Buffett quote, a word of wisdom to our listening audience. He says, if you cannot control your emotions, you cannot control your money. And I think that is so wise um, because a lot of my dumb financial decisions that I've made, I'll let Patrick speak for himself, <laughs> have been made not because I didn't put the time in analytically, but it was because I let my emotions control my decisions. It's so easy to buy and sell and hold based on what you're feeling on a particular day, um, but can't let that do that to you. Yeah, that's probably been 90% of my investing history is just speculation and, and, and everything. So that's that's not very good. But yeah, that is that is definitely wise. And I think it's something that intuitively every investor knows not to let emotions drive your decisions. But you're like, okay, just this one time, if right. the stock gets back up to this price, I'll, I'll sell it. Or, you know, you're just really sad that you've lost money on it. You're like, oh, I got to at least make my money back. Word of wisdom from the smartest 93-year-old investor, Warren Buffett. Don't let emotions control your decisions. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly. We hope you'll join us next week as we talk about what are we talking about, Patrick, next week? Next week, um, we're going to be talking still about the summer um, and about the airline um, problems and all of the airplane demand issues that were happening. So it should be a good episode. And I'll be talking about still this automotive strike and what goes on with that in the next week. But thank you for listening to Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM.